dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing another episode of a virtual masterclass I attended on Oregon wine. May was Oregon Wine Month, and in celebration, this masterclass was dedicated to the white varietals. I think many people think red when Oregon is mentioned, and it was interesting to be reminded that there are some great white wines available to us also. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can do it right now as you are listening. New ratings and reviews are how the algorithms decide which podcasts they recommend to others, and it is honestly the best way to support the podcast. Don't forget to add your email address to the website to keep up on all things exploring the wine glass. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, someday service, champagne and cloteron specialist, and a WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We're going to be jumping around the state talking about white wines. Um, white wine in Oregon, for me, holds a very special place in my heart. I think it's one of the um, real stars, uh, shining stars here in Oregon. I do think that it's a really, really unique area for growing white wines. Uh, and while we, you know, I've certainly focused on reds and have many more uh, red varieties, um, there are or more plantings of red varieties. I feel like the whites are really um, are really under under um, appreciated. So we definitely drink a lot of them here, but hopefully there'll be more of them uh, around the country and internationally in future years as well. Oregon, that large state that's wedged in between Washington and California, uh, we are up against the Pacific Ocean. So we have a really strong uh, oceanic in, uh, imprint uh, happening on most of our regions. We are a growing, uh, 80, great growing state for wine production as well, with more than 23 AVAs now in Oregon. Um, we're really, uh, you know, hitting over 60 years in, uh, in wine growing and grape growing quality production here after the pro uh, prohibition time. And so we're really starting to carve out our very special um, named places or terroir places. Uh, and they're given typically um, uniform, you know, land, land um, scale um, names to them. So whether it's Dundee Hills or Tualatin Hills, whether they're shaped around water sources 
more specific soil types, um, as is the Rocks District of Milton Water. As we're coming into the second and third generations of Vineron here in Oregon, we're really starting to hone in on our uh, real specialties within each AVA. Um, so really starting to refine what we do best in each area and really starting to explore really what's possible uh, in this really amazing wine growing state. One of the reasons why this state is growing um, is we're seeing, we're starting to see wine growth everywhere along, especially the uh, water systems or whether it's the Columbia River Valley uh, in the north, just going back there to that state, um, Columbia River Valley there in the north, separating Washington and Oregon, or the Pacific Ocean, or the Willamette Valley, or Rogue River, or Umpqua River, we're really starting to see a lot more expansion into vineyards in these areas. So growth happening uh, pretty much everywhere around the state. Walla Walla has seen some of the largest increases in growth, along with the Willamette Valley and the Umpqua Valley as well. So as I did mention, Pinot Noir and red varieties do dominate Oregon's major plantings, but that's not to say that we don't have, well, 69 other grape varieties and probably more by now because there's always someone planting something new just as it gets released uh, from a nursery. And so there's a lot of just real innovation and experimentation happening here in Oregon as winemakers and wine growers uh, from all over the world are starting to really seek out the beauty of this growing region. It has an abundance of water, an abundance of really lovely wind conditions that help to make it a really um, organic growing uh, area in terms of how we can farm here and the quality of life. So we are going to focus on the uh, on the whites today. So Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, uh, Albarino, Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Sauvignon Blanc, everything's in growth. And there's certainly dozens of varieties that I haven't touched on, um, but I tried to keep it to varieties that are planted all over the state. So making it um, a discussion about how they differ in each region and what, um, flavor profiles you can really expect to come from each individual region um, around Oregon for these specific grape, grape varieties. Uh, but touching on first, what makes grape growing in Oregon so ideal for great wine, not just for uh, red wine, but for white wine as well, uh, it's a combination of factors. Definitely the soils come into play. We have some really deep um, marine sedimentary alluvial soils. We have um, clay volcanic soils uh, that are very intense and help to um, keep in the water systems. Um, and then we also have stream sediments because Oregon has really been carved by a lot of moving river systems. And so we do have a lot of alluvial river banks um, and stream sediments that are present in, in a lot of our AVAs. Um, the other the other combination which is important is our latitude and our daylight length. So we have really long, warm, sunny days and cool nights. So that diurnal temperature um, drop happens in every region in Oregon, and it's more pronounced in certain regions than in others. But we do really see a vast diurnal temperature shift, which really helps to give us. Um, it really helps to give us the um, 
freshness and fruit purity and high acidity retained in all of our wines. So that northerly latitude helps give us that long extended daylight and then the cooling influences that come from the Pacific Ocean and are really um, you know wind influences that meander down a lot of our valleys uh, along river systems and are impacted by the steepness of our slopes and cool air pooling off of our uh, mountain ranges. So all of that makes up for really uh, food friendly wine with great acidity, great structure and great aging potential. The other thing is that we are a region that has a lot of uh, estate owned and small estate owned uh, grower winemakers. So our vinerons and winemakers are spending so much time actually in the vineyards uh, with their crop, understanding their fruit and really nurturing it into the best uh, fruit quality that it can be and picking at it and picking at it at right just the perfect time. Uh, the other thing is, is that we have a huge amount of biodiversity still in our regions. So none of our regions are a monoculture of the vine yet. We still have a lot of mixed farming and a lot of forests and a lot of um, animal uh, biodiversity uh, as well. So really important for the health of our vines and also to keep the health of our community and our vines as well. So you can see there, there's that vineyard with the forest surrounding it which is a pretty common vineyard site um, and then along the valley floors you can see generally how steep our vineyards are as well and then down on the valley floors we don't typically plant a lot of grapes on a lot of the valley floors they're more reserved for um, crops like orchard fruits um, hazelnuts or as we call them in Oregon filberts uh, and then of course grass seed and nursery plants as well so lots of uh, agriculture still happening uh, in Oregon. So we're very aware of our growing conditions uh, and taking care of our uh, surroundings. So touching on the soil aspect, we have you know, ancient soils, not as ancient as some, reg uh, some reg regions, but we do have ancient marine sedimentary uplifts and bedrock ancient marine sediment uplifts that are really present in the Willamette Valley. Um, when the tectonic plates came together, they were ra they raised up uh, out of the um, sea, which Oregon was under, uh, these beautiful marine sediments, and they make up a number of uh, AVAs in the Willamette Valley itself. And then as you start to move south into southern Oregon's AVA, we have these really ancient bedrock marine sediments that are uh, almost sandstone-like in their appearance and their free draining ability. So much more ancient marine sediments as we move south into the Umpqua Valley AVA and then into the Rogue Valley. This is really important uh, for keeping that drainage happening, uh, but also allowing the vine roots to go very, very deep into the soils here. Uh, then came all of the volcanic eruptions and the um, uh, mountain ranges that really left a lot of basalt lava flows in the North Willamette and the Columbia Valley, Columbia Gorge and Walla Walla Valley AVAs. So these lava basalt flows came from the series of uh, cascade uh, mountains that um, 
exploded, erupted during this time, leaving massive lava flows to run down to the north part of the Willamette Valley, where they sort of peter out after about Eola Amity Hills and just south of Salem. So that's why the North Willamette Valley, you'll find very distinctive types of wines from two specific or three specific soil types, marine sediments, volcanic basalts, and then the Ice Age Missoula flood soils as well, but the loafs that came from the uh, degradation of these basalt lava flows and the scraping of the um, ice flows that came through the Columbia Valley um, and the Columbia River system and blew down into the top of the North Willamette Valley, covering the Shehalem Mountains and Tualatin Hills AVAs with these very fine um, talc powder-like free draining, fast draining, low soils. Um, they are very good for um, being fast draining, but they also help to retain um, some water during the wet season as well, and really slow release that during uh, the summer as our summers dry out quite quickly in June and July. So that slow release of water really helping to nurture the vines through the summer period and that growing season. Um, and also they're very important for um, reducing the spread of phylloxera and allowing us to have some of the oldest vines um, still in the Willamette Valley in these Laurel Wood and Tualatin Hills AVAs. So three, three distinct soil types, those low soils and uh, volcanic lava um, eruption soils are really present also along the Columbia River Gorge, which is what you can see in that um, picture down on the left. Uh, that is really coated in those uh, fast draining low soils and that move that spreads from the Columbia Gorge, um, even though there's a bedrock of basalt underneath, it spreads uh, east out through the Columbia Valley AVA and into the Walla Walla AVA, where these low soils are incredibly deep. Um, and it's a combination of riverbed soils and low soils that are really impacting the wine styles that are grown in the Rocks District, the Milton Free Water District, uh, and the Walla Walla Valley in Eastern Oregon. Columbia Valley and Walla Walla Valley, of course, are our shared AVAs uh, with Washington State. So then again, moving uh, into the whole combination of what makes uh, this such a great place to grow, uh, grow premium grapes is again, the fact that we are really formed by rivers and mountain ranges. And as we learn in all of our wine studies, we know the importance of having moving water systems and moderating water systems that can help prevent frost and also help to moderate the climate and cool it down, bringing it away from extremes in temperature. And that really makes for a really um, even ripening period that can happen throughout the majority of our growing regions. Obviously, it's cooler in the north as we are moving northern in latitude uh, and warmer in the south as we get in, you know, closer to California and the California border. But those river systems, the Columbia River, the U.S.'s fourth largest river system, is incredibly important for irrigation that's required in the Columbia Valley AVA and Walla Walla Valley AVA and much of the Gorge AVA as well. 
So that river system provides a lot of irrigation for Washington and Oregon, helping the vines to survive during the hot summers, which are much more extreme here than they are, say, in the Willamette Valley. This area also helps to provide really intense winds, which can sometimes be a little too intense, much like the Mistral of France. It will, the river will create that um, suction out to the Pacific Ocean uh, or in from the Pacific Ocean, but really creating wind temperatures uh, that are in excess of, you know, 80 miles an hour. They're incredibly fast and they can shut down um, the vines and delay ripening here, which can be a really good thing to help protract that growing season again and let flavor development catch up um, with sugar development as well. Uh, moving uh, south into the Willamette Valley AVA. So the Willamette Valley AVA is bordered by that Columbia River in the north and travels uh, from Portland south of Salem just past the town of Eugene. Um, so quite a large AVA. It's three and a half million acres in size and it really um, is dominated by hillside vineyards. So really benefiting from those foothill vineyards on the Cascade Range and Coast Range. That said, the majority of vineyards are located on that westerly coast range side where they're huddled up against the um, hills being protected from the uh, rainfall that comes in off the Pacific Ocean and really benefiting from uh, east facing slopes that will take the morning sunlight um, from, from that eastern Cascade Range area. Um, moving down into Southern Oregon AVAs, you have the Umpqua Valley AVA and the Umpqua River, which um, moves through Elkton and out to the sea um, and down to the town of Roseburg. And that river is very important again for irrigation. And this is where we really start to move into um, a territory of getting into warmer, drier areas. So the Umpqua Valley has one foot, especially in the northern side, in the Willamette Valley's uh, more maritime climate. Um, and then the rest is very Mediterranean and can get very dry and cool. However, the benefit of being in the Umpqua Valley is that the elevations of vineyards here um, are quite high. And what that means for uh, vineyard um, development and vineyard characteristics is that during um, the hot summers, so you will often get, you know, 90 plus 100, early 100 plus degrees um, temperatures here. Um, but during the evenings, they will drop down to as low as uh, 50 uh, and sometimes even lower. So a drastic, drastic diurnal temperature shift that really is created uh, by these uh, river and mountain systems. And again, that cool air that that funnels from the Pacific Ocean over the mountain ranges and into the steep vineyards that cool down those vineyard areas really help to preserve the acidity and the freshness of the fruit and the grapes, allowing the vines at night a chance to relax, recuperate uh, and restore their water reserves as well. Down in the Rogue River, uh, they are bordered to the west by the Siskiyou Mountains and the Applegate River and Rogue River are both dominant uh, river systems in this landscape. 
So very uh, meandering out to the sea again. And this is where these river systems have really moved quite a bit. So much of the Rogue River, um, much of the Rogue Valley AVA, and especially the Applegate Valley AVA are really alluvial river systems that are very free draining. Um, they can be quite nutrient poor, um, but they're ideal for this shorter growing season where the vines need the soil to warm up and the rocky sandy soils down here are really warming up quite early on to get those vines alive and producing uh, during uh, the warm climate, the hot days down here. And again, a lot of these vineyards uh, in the Rogue Valley are at 2000 feet elevation. So they're quite high, 1600 feet is, you know, the average, um, but quite high. And again, that really promotes a very large diurnal temperature shift. Uh, and what that means down here, because you have the hotter days as well, you get these thicker skins on grapes, uh, more structured wines and vibrant, juicy acidities that really help to retain the acidity, um, but also the fresh fruit flavors in the wines. So you get more full-bodied wine styles, but with very fresh, crisp fruit flavors. And of course, it's a beautiful area to visit as most of Oregon is, but very dramatic in terms of uh, what we see um, from, from vineyards there, very close proximity to all the mountains and rivers in that area. And then sunshine in Oregon. So latitude is a huge factor um, for allowing Oregon to grow premium uh, fine wine grapes. So it really is because of our latitude that in the winter, we are receiving more than 15 hours a day of prime growing sunlight. And so we all know that the heat is not the only um, equation in ripening a high quality wine grape. You also need UV light. And the fact that the UV light here in Oregon is at such a uh, dramatically steep angle, it means that it's not as severe and as hot as in other parts of the country. And so this allows us to both still open the canopy and the fruit zone de-leafing in the fruit zone without allowing sunburn to happen and that sunlight getting into the grapes and into the fruit zone um, helps to a prevent rot but also um, really helps to thicken the skins um, and degrade any green flavors that we would see in these grapes. So really lovely ripe wines at lower alcohols because of this latitudinal shift um, and the gentle sunshine. Being in Oregon, we get about two hours more um, sunshine during the growing season than say Napa Valley does. And then the other unique um, uh, situation that we have here is really that we have a, a very sharp Mediterranean climate. Um, very dry during the summer. So unlike Burgundy and other parts of Europe that see rainfall throughout the growing season, Oregon is incredibly lucky to receive a very dry growing season, which means that we are not um, spraying our vineyards as often. We don't have as much tractor compaction uh, and the need to be in the vineyard and um, spraying every you know, every four to six days, we get a really nice reprieve during the growing season, right until harvest where um, sprays are really lessened in their need. 
And so our growth period or our rainfall period is really happening from December through April. And uh, we have definitely been having a lot of rainfall this year, um, but it is really starting to become mild. And we'll start to see, as you can see on this graph, that the rainfall will lessen. And then during the months of July, August, and most of September, Oregon is very um, cloud-free, big blue skies, and also rain-free. So again, uh, that allows us to grow quality wine grapes without the fear of having uh, powdery mildew or botrytis developing um, during that all crucial growing season when the grapes are really trying to ripen and get good uh, sunshine conditions there. And then finally, that fourth factor is that we are a community of small artisan producers. The majority of wineries in Oregon produce less than a fat that less than 5,000 cases um, and most vineyards in Oregon are around 20 to 40 acres in size at most which allows um, you know a small team um, and a family to really be able to manage those vines. Um, we also have been recognized um, that you know a lot of the fine wine that is recognized in the country uh, in terms of wine spectator reviews, uh, wine enthusiast reviews. We outpace other regions. While we only produce 1% of the fine wine in the US, our wine spectator scores for 90 plus wines are up in the 25% range. So really being acknowledged that this combination of our unique soils, um, our hands-on approach to uh, farming and um, our unique dry summers and growing seasons are really a key influence in producing fine, high-quality wines. And the fact that we spend so much of our own time in the, in the vineyard itself. Uh, so as you can see here, this is just an example of why it's you know, so obvious that we are very connected to our place and to really doing the best for our place and for the people that we work with. Um, and that means you know, limiting um, uh, any sprays that don't really need to happen and working towards an organic farming system. Uh, these beautiful uh, mountains, uh, this is the gorgeous Vermentino grape down at Troon Vineyard in the Applegate Valley, but you can see the proximity of the wildlands in Oregon. It's ever present around you. And therefore all of those wildlands are still uh, biodiversity pathways. So we still have a lot of animal life uh, coming through our vineyards. Uh, so biodynamics and regenerative farming in Oregon is really thriving. We're seeing an increase every single year in these farming practices. Uh, you have someone there filling a cow's horn um, with biodynamic prep. And then Oregon actually accounts for uh, nearly 52% of the certified biodynamic acreage in the US. Uh, and that's a you know, very um, good number considering you know, how much we, how present we are in the US in terms of actual vineyard production. Um, that we have some of the largest vineyards. So King Estate um, is one of the largest biodynamic certified producers in the US and was one of the first in Oregon to go ahead with um, 
biodynamic certification. And there's really biodynamic certified and organic certified producers all over the state. Our sustainable certified organization live, which is low input viticulture and enology, about 47% of producers are uh, um, in that uh, live certification, sustainable certification process. Um, and live continues to move towards um, where growers want to be, which is often increasing their biodiversity. Um, so adding animals in the vineyard, as you can see the sheep in this vineyard here. Um, and that's something that regenerative organic farming um, certification also um, uh, insurers as well. So regenerative organic farming, uh, Troon Vineyard in the Applegate Valley was one of the first vineyards and the first in Oregon to, um, to be certified as, um, as a regenerative or organic farm. And that means that they have to have um, a portion of animal husbandry on the farm as well and animals in the vineyard. Uh, it's also one of the first certification that really includes the um, their requirements for uh, health of staff as well. So really um, taking stock of the whole ecosystem um, to get these additional certifications in place. Uh, there's one question coming up in the chat here. Uh, is the 52% number, uh, it's only for vineyards. 52% um, number is for biodynamic acreage for grapes. Okay, let's jump into these grape varieties. So Pinot Gris, and I'm going to include Riesling here as well, because Pinot Gris and Riesling were really the first two grape varieties that, um, white varieties that Oregon really built its name around. Um, Oregon was the first um, region in the U.S. to commercialize Pinot Gris as a white wine and really spent a lot of time developing uh, the education around uh, what Pinot Gris is. And so we do have many styles of Pinot Gris here in the US now or in Oregon. Um, and so it has moved from being a sort of more rich and luscious style uh, with you know lots of baked fruit characters, um, baked pear and orchard fruit flavors um, in the Willamette Valley to something that's now much leaner and juicy and more crisp. Um, and also um, styles that are seeing the use of the Pinot Gris skins. Being that Pinot Gris is a mutation of Pinot Noir, it actually does have purple skins. So you can pull a lot of color out of those skins, especially when you do open up the canopy uh, and let that UV light in and build the anthocyanins and the color in the Pinot Gris skins. So there's now a number of producers, um, particularly in the Willamette Valley and Columbia Gorge that are making skin contact Pinot Gris as well and making a Ramato style or a light red style um, from the variety. In uh, Southern Oregon, um, still the most planted grape variety in every single AVA. I was still a little uh, shocked to see that Pinot Gris is still uh, the most dominant um, grape variety in all AVAs around the state for white, white wines, um, apart from Milton Freewater. Um, so really, um, Southern Oregon is still seeing plantings of Pinot Gris happening, although in the Willamette Valley, we haven't really seen um, continued plantings of Pinot Gris. 
uh, Willamette Valley is starting to move into more uh, Chardonnay and other varieties and less so on Pinot Gris. But down in the Umpqua Valley and Southern R and Rogue Valley AVAs, there's still plantings of Pinot Gris happening. Uh, and those wines tend to be very crisp, um, very high acid, um, much more green and yellow apple, nashi pears, um, orchard fruit styles of, of wines. Uh, so here's a couple of images. And a lot of the, um, the acreage of uh, Pinot Gris that does go into, um, that is grown in the Umpqua Valley and uh, Northern or, and the Rogue Valley AVA actually does go into Oregon Appellated wines, uh, like those that you'll see from Acrobat in those cans or to A to Z or Union as well. Uh, prevalence of Pinot Blanc. It is declining. <laughs> uh, we don't really see any more plantings of Pinot Blanc. Uh, and although it was one of the styles that was the grapes that was originally planted, um, to my knowledge, there's really no more of it being planted. Uh, and many of those that were originally planted are being torn out. That said, there's some really beautiful um, old vine vineyards of Pinot Blanc as well. but as it comes into, you know, um, a specific varietal labeling um, style, they tend to be included more in a white blend. Uh, and there's really not too many people using Pinot Blanc as a single varietal wine anymore. Um, so definitely on the decline, um, but some small producers who are who are using it and also some that are, um, I think, labeling as Oxua as well. Yeah, Gewurztraminer is good too. And again, sadly being torn out along with Riesling as well. Um, so I might take a moment just to touch on Riesling now as well, because it now makes up less than 1% of the white grape plantings um, in Oregon as well and suffers a little bit the same um, fate as Pinot Gris is, um, especially in the Willamette Valley, where you do need to still do a lot of education about the style of Riesling. Um, but for those in the know, there are some beautiful old vine um, Riesling vineyards in the McMinnville and Eola Amity Hills AVAs and Yamhill Carlton AVAs that make incredibly distinctive styles of Riesling. And the one thing that I think is really special about Riesling in the Willamette Valley is that because of it being such a late ripening variety, um, it does get the benefit of having a long growing season where you can really build those flavor profiles. And you can also farm it for um, botrytis as well. So really building in some complexity into Riesling um, can be a lot of fun in the Willamette Valley with those old vine vineyards. The other thing about white grapes that we mentioned earlier was that they, you know, having that great UV um, uh, exposure and also the wind exposure really thickens the skins of white grapes. And what that means is that you have a strong phenolic character in your wines. And that phenolic character can be really expressive and really interesting, especially for food friendly wines, that you get a really lovely phenolic bitterness. 
an quinine uh, flavor profile out of. If you are a winemaker that is not afraid to use some of those phenolics in your wine styles, uh, instead of just doing a very gentle pressing. And a lot of these grapes like Pinot Gris, like Riesling, like Gewürztraminer and like Grüneveltliner, they hold a lot of flavor in their skins. And so in the old world uh, or in Europe, you will generally find that these grapes um, are not so gently handled they will have more maceration times on their skins whether that's just um, a, a complexity of how they're being harvested and the age of the winemaking equipment um, but it's generally um, you know the US and you know Australia that are really not taking full advantage of the flavor profile grapes because they are handling them too gently and really just taking the fresh juice and gentle extraction practices um, a little too far um, when they could be making much more interesting wines. And now a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. Speaking of interesting wines, the rise of Oregon Chardonnay is something that's really um, coming on very strong. Uh, I'm sort of surprised um, to see that the Chardonnay production is still only um, listed as about 7% of total um, vineyard growth in all of Oregon. the amount of Chardonnay that I see being planted around the Willamette Valley, especially, but also in the Umpqua and the Rogue Valleys and Columbia Valley, um, tells me that there is going to be a lot of great Oregon Chardonnay uh, really hitting the market in, in a few years' time. Um, Chardonnay was one of the original varieties that was plant he- planted here in the 60s. And it was really, um, you know, a sort of a complex uh, storm of reasons why uh, it wasn't ideal at the time. Uh, So Chardonnay in the 60s, we didn't have um, clonal selections that would suit the the weather landscapes, the climate landscapes of Oregon uh, and particularly of the Willamette Valley. So the Chardonnay, the clones that were being brought up from California um, had a lot more disease um, and in their um, cluster morphology um, and in their cluster morphology and so you were getting a lot more complexity so small hen and chick bunches so large berries and small berries um, coming through and um, that that was really um, not working quite very well in a very cool uh, growing season, which 
70s um, and 80s really still were in Oregon. So in the 80s, we did have the introduction um, of the Dijon clones. Uh, Dr. Bernard um, from um, uh, Dijon sent out Burgundian clonal selections around the world where they landed in the Adelaide Hills, um, in Argentina and Chile, in South Africa, and of course in Oregon. And so what these clonal selections did was they um, take on sugar accumulation very easily. And so they were able to make a much richer, riper style of Chardonnay um, than the previous clonal selections. So since the 80s and 90s, we are really, um, we are, you know, have really expanded the conversation around Chardonnay. The other um, complicating factor with uh, Chardonnay in the 70s and 80s was that the style of Chardonnay that Americans were drinking uh, was the very ripe, buttery, um, highly oaked, um, generous um, style of Chardonnay. And even, even the California style, which what it is what it was, that style today has, you know, drastically um, moved in terms of its style preferences. So now that people are generally looking for leaner, fresher, more mineral and citrus driven styles of Chardonnay, Oregon Chardonnay has really been coming into its own. And it's been quite nice to actually revisit some of these older um, selections of Chardonnay. The Draper clone of Chardonnay is planted at Irie Vineyard, and they will often bring out um, aged examples of this Chardonnay. And um, even today, uh, you know, those wines from the 70s um, are performing just spectacularly well. So unfortunately, it was a little bit of not be, you know, right wrong place, right place, wrong time uh, for Chardonnay in the 60s in, in Oregon. But now we are having a renaissance and uh, it is really a fantastic, um, complex, smoky, flinty, minerally um, leaner style of Chardonnay that we're starting to see. Uh, so a couple of questions. Uh, when were the Dijon clone Chardonnays planted? Uh, they weren't introduced until the late 80s, so 1988. So they really didn't get released from um, the universities until um, 1990, 1991. Uh, so it's really the 90s that um, Dijon clone Chardonnay started taking off and that was primarily in the Willamette Valley but now they're found all over as well. Uh, can I speak to white Pinot Noir? Uh, I can but it's not a white grape it's just think about Pinot Noir as champagne and they're gently pressing it taking away just the juice and uh, making it like a Chardonnay or making it like a Pinot Blanc um, in stainless steel or fermenting in oak. So uh, really more of a champagne method when you make white Pinot Noir, um, not really uh, bringing any of the varietal characteristics into the conversation. Okay, so Chardonnay is still only 7%, again, mostly grown in the Willamette Valley. In fact, you know, the Willamette Valley is the majority of, um, you know, production of any real grape variety that's, that's grown at, at, le at level here. Uh, thanks, David, for popping that in the chat as well. Yeah, great article by James Suckling about his excitement over, over Oregon Chardonnay, and I would have to agree. Um, so far, we've been consuming a lot of it here, but some people are letting it get out, and so the secret's not, not safe anymore, and uh, Oregon Chardonnay is definitely um, 
taking the place of a lot more expensive and uh, increasingly rarer Burgundian Chardonnay on a lot of um, great restaurant lists around the nation, uh, and rightly so. The wines are really fantastic. Um, again, really capturing that um, freshness of our growing season. So ripe fruit, but citrus and uh, white nectarine, white peach, just ripe orchard fruit flavors um, with really elegant acid and um, well handled and um, very subtle oak influence, giving just a hint of uh, mineral smokiness to the wines. Uh, and really no batonnage uh, is used anymore in Oregon Chardonnay. Um, it's all Lee's contact and extended Lee's contact to build a creamy rich mid palate um, without being excessive um, and really building it too much. So just a gentle, um, gentle building of the lees on the palettes. Question, are Oregon winemakers using a Burgundian style to make Chardonnays or are we developing our own profile? You know, I think that's still um, a development question. They have definitely taken from the Burgundian model or the Merceau model, which is to um, ferment in a uh, light long toasted oak and then keep the wine on its lees um, for um, over vintage. So keeping it in barrel uh, for about 10 months and then taking it um, all the lees and the juice into stainless steel um, at about that 10 or 11 month mark and really aging it for another six to eight months just on those leaves in um, leaves in a very reductive environment. So removing that oxidative um, and oak flavor influence on the wines and bringing in that um, mid palate building um, style. Uh, I think there's still uh, some who are still figuring it out in terms of um, you know, when, um, you know, what the balance is of fruit and phenolic structure uh, and acidity in the wines. But um, Burgundian Chardonnay practice, practices have definitely been uh, a huge influence um, in the style conversation that's, that's moving forward um, in Oregon Chardonnay. And you can see there's a ton of Burgundians who are now moving to the Willamette Valley, especially, um, and really making some lovely Chardonnays as well. Um, although uh, it has to be said that the Burgundians are certainly finding it that Oregon is not Burgundy and has a completely different growing season um, and profile that that gives to the fruit as well. So um, they too are having to make adaptations. And that's something that's, you know, that collaborative community, communal nature of Oregon is one where um, everyone is really sharing um, their uh, influences and their understandings and what's happening in their um, Chardonnay production. So I think uh, like with Pinot Noir and other, you know, great varieties, Chardonnay is really um, increasing in quality and popularity very swiftly because the, of the amount of um, community collaboration that's really happening around the variety. Uh, we're definitely excited about it in Oregon. So it's hard not to, you know, talk to everyone and share, share your wine and share your styles and um, your secrets of production when you're making it as well. While I'm on Chardonnay, let's not forget Blanc de Blanc because there are some fantastic Blanc de Blancs being made now as well. 
um, really complex styles. And, you know, Argyle is the king of the extended tourage style, um, but there's uh, now so much sparkling wine that's being made in Oregon um, and Blanc de Blancs are definitely um, increasing. Uh, one more question. Oh, Grunewald Lehner, yes. Uh, that's a favorite of mine as well, but I didn't include it in this because it's not quite everywhere yet. And I could be here all day if I, if I talk about every single grape variety that we have. <laughs> but Grunewald Lehner is certainly a favorite of mine as well. Um, and I love the complexity and the, the unique flavor profile that it has here in Oregon as well. Okay, moving into Viognier. So Viognier is actually grown in every ABA, um, although it does really thrive in a hot continental climate like the Walla Walla Valley um, and Rogue Valley where it's high elevations and alluvial soils uh, really help that um, grape variety retain its freshness um, and vibrant energy as well. Um, super food friendly um, and really um, great for age worthiness as well. So um, good to put in the cellar. Uh, so Viognier is a thick-skinned grape variety. It's a pretty rich, oily uh, white wine. Um, although it originated in the Northern Rhone, um, it's definitely um, grown in the Mediterranean regions around Oregon. So the Rogue Valley um, has some of the largest acreage of Viognier um, in the state and is really excelling um, in this very unique style. So very full-bodied, um, fleshy, intense fruit flavors. But again, this remarkable energy and vibrant acidity. And the Rogue Valley winemakers are not um, overly shy about using some of those phenolics um, and the glycerol intensity of the grape um, to combine it um, in a mix of both stainless steel vessels uh, and neutral oak and lightly oaked styles as well. Um, so creating really complex flavors, um, anything from mango and peach uh, through to the fresher flavors of honeysuckle and tangerine and more citrus fruit flavors as well. Um, it is grown in the Willamette Valley also, where it tends to be a late ripener. So one of those varieties that ripens like Gruneveltliner towards the very end of the season and really extends the growing season into late October. Um, so very much more of a crisp orchard fruit profile in the Willamette Valley. Uh, and then as you move out through the Columbia Valley um, and into the Walla Walla AVA and also the Rocks District AVA uh, is where Viognier uh, is actually being planted a lot as well. And that makes sense given that the Rocks District is mainly focused on Syrah and uh, Grenache plantings. Uh, and the same with Walla Walla, there's a huge amount of Cabernet and Merlot, but there's also a decent amount of Syrah um, and Grenache being planted there. And Viognier is being planted in small amounts in vineyards with Syrah and Grenache in the Rocks district so that it can be co-fermented um, as well as made into a white wine as well. So co-fermentation with Syrah, especially in a region that has quite high pH Syrahs um, or very broad, rich Syrahs, uh, Viognier can bring some lovely um, crisp acidity and some phenolic texture um, and wind back the alcohol level and pH just a little bit in those areas. Um, but they can really make the Syrah, um, especially in the meaty wines of the Rocks District, it'll really make those um, 
berry flavors pop in the, in the Syrahs if a little is co-fermented there as well. Albarino is another grape variety that I am seeing a huge amount of interest in. There's more and more plantings happening in the Willamette Valley and in Southern Oregon. And I guess it makes sense because, you know, crisp white wines, um, that's similar to Riesling, um, have that really lovely, rich, crisp citrus and stone fruit flavors, um, but with really lovely salinity and really zesty acidity um, are really um, starting to take hold. Um, and this one, this Albarino is, uh, you know, made often in stainless steel. Um, so it can be a really nice early drinking wine style. And also given the fact that, you know, Oregon produces some of the you know, most delicious Dungeness crab, albacore, tuna, um, clams, oysters. It really is a wine that just goes with everything seafood. Um, again, it's a pretty phenolic grape variety and holds a lot of flavor in its skins. So when you let it get nice and ripe in Southern Oregon, say in the Umpqua Valley, where you have these lovely high elevations um, and cooling mountain winds blowing through that can allow the grape variety to hang a little bit longer, but still retaining the acidity, what it gives you is these really quite um, exotic honeydew and nectarine with ginger spice flavors uh, coming through the wine as well. Um, and so this grape variety is being planted everywhere um, through Rogue, Umpqua, Willamette Valley, Columbia Gorge, ABA. Um, I don't, and actually also in the Walla Walla Valley as well. Um, are the flavor profiles of Albarino and Pinot Blanc similar? Uh, I wouldn't say they're incredibly similar. I would say that Albarino is um, a lot more similar to Riesling um, than Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc can be very much um, citrus and green apple, but it struggles to give you much more than that. Maybe some white apple blossom florals at best. Um, but Albarino can be a really exotic um, fruit profile. So if you pick it early on the early side, lower alcohol, alcohol side, it'll definitely be more like grapefruit um, and tangerine and citrus flavors um, and green apple flavors and really uh, ripping acidity that hurts your teeth quite a bit um, through to if you do let it hang a little bit more, get more developed and riper styles, then you will really be able to pull out a lot more of that orchard fruit character, um, the honeydew melons. Uh, and then if you age it in tank on its lees, you're really pulling out a lot more of that salinity that the grape very naturally hells. And you often find that in Riesling as well. It's just that Riesling's overt floralness um, and overt fruit characteristics can sometimes hide some of that salinity. So I would probably say that Albarino is a little more like a shy Riesling um, than it is like Pinot Blanc. But some really great examples being made. And you can see here, this is a fantastic image of the fault line vineyard um, at Abacella in the Umpqua Valley. Uh, on the left there, um, you see uh, Earl standing in the vineyard. Um, he's looking at his Tempranillo, but this is also where the um, Albarino is planted as this really lovely ribbon-like slope um, meanders all the way down to the valley floor uh, and down to the Umpqua River down there. 
Uh, and then the other vineyard where we have um, a lot of Albarino being grown as well, and definitely a lot of Spanish varieties, is on um, is just outside of the Columbia Gorge AVA in the Columbia Valley AVA. Um, and this site is, uh, you can see how um, terraced and layered those vineyards are. Um, this is all low soils, and there's um, a lot of Spanish varieties and Albarino planted in this vineyard as well at Three Mile. Okay, Chen Blanc, the winemaker's love affair grape, I think, or maybe it's the sommelier's love affair grape. Um, but there's definitely a lot of interest in Shannon Blanc um, and people sourcing it from from as far as Washington and the Columbia Valley all the way through the Willamette Valley and Southern Oregon. So slowly more and more being planted of this variety, which really tends to work with um, the Oregon climate very well, whether you're in um, a hot, dry region like the Southern Oregon area, especially the Rogue Valley, um, this will make a full bodied um, white wine with lots of yellow and pear, uh, yellow apple and pear flavors um, and be um, a nice medium bodied style, medium to full bodied style of white wine. You can barrel age it, barrel ferment it, uh, neutral oak or just a hint of new oak as well is really um, beautiful on this variety and really brings out its nice floral chamomile um, floral notes to the wine, um, really exotic. And then if you're working with it in the Willamette Valley or the Columbia Gorge ABA, where we can sometimes um, be pushing up against the ripening for this grape variety at the end of the season, you can use the botrytis that might develop in late October to really concentrate some of the sugars um, and bring out more of the quince flavors and ginger spice flavors uh, in Shannon Blanc as well. Um, again, honey characters coming from Botrytis and from aged Chenin Blanc. Uh, and you can also, if you like, make this into a beautiful sparkling wine as well. So anything from working with Botrytis and not spraying your vineyard as much to picking um, the grape on its leaner side and really pushing for um, an exotic sparkling wine with lots of quince and pear fruit flavors. Uh, we're seeing some pet nuts coming out of Chenin Blanc as well, which is fun to see. Um, and just a you know vibrant and delicious fresh uh, fruit mouthful. Uh, and then this is a vineyard in the Applegate Valley as well. Again, just showing the proximity of those mountains and all of those wild landscapes that are so common here in Oregon as well. Um, you can see all the oaks as well and the protected um, a lot of people are protecting those oak strands um, so that the biodiversity and the animals can um, can make their way through um, the between the vineyard pathways. Savion Blanc. Um, this is a fun variety in Oregon, and I didn't um, really appreciate it until I started making Savion Blanc. Um, okay, let me see. Got California ruined Shannon Blanc for me. <laughs> Yes, well, come come taste some of the Oregon uh, Shannon Blancs because they are much more like the Loire Valley, and it makes sense because um, you know Loire Valley River system is much more similar to the Willamette Valley and Rogue Valley River systems as well, um, Columbia Valley River systems, um, much much more similar Shannon Blanc um, to the Loire uh, here in Oregon. Um, Sauvignon Blanc really unique and exotic. Again. Um, 
coming back to that UV light exposure um, and really helping to break down um, some of the ultra the um, ultra green and grassy herbal um, fruit in Savion Blanc um, is what happens when you expose the bunches to UV light. And so you can get very rich, ripe styles with lots of tropical guava and passion fruit flavors from a cooler region like the Willamette Valley because you're able to expose that cluster to fruit and being that pyrazines which are present in Savion Blanc and uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc um, these can really break down in UV light um, so pyrazines are really degraded by the UV light and that is really what helps to give these more exotic riper flavors in your Savion Blanc which is really lovely to see in a cool region and then in the hotter regions where you're not maybe opening up your fruit zone quite as much uh, you can shade the canopy shade the fruit clusters with the canopy um, and really allow some of those grassy herbal flavors to come through um, so this this variety is um, a favorite that's growing amongst um, all of the AVAs across Oregon and again making more richer um, exotic styles from Rogue Valley especially in the Bear Creek um, Valley area uh, where it's more exposed and has really beautiful open wind conditions um, and very nice dry um, conditions there to get it really lovely ripe with gooseberry and grapefruit and white peach flavors um, and lots of spice characteristics through to the Willamette Valley where in cool years you'll have more honeydew um, and um, green passion fruit characters and gooseberry flavors um, through to where you can let it hang um, and develop, um, break down some of those pyrazines in the skins and in the flavor profile and really build a rich fruit, white peach, guava, tropical fruited, um, ripe passion fruit palette as well. However, no matter where you are, Savion Blanc always retains that really etchy, rusty acidity, um, quite aggressive acidity, but that makes it so favorable to uh, work with across every um, AVA is because you can really play with how much um, ripeness you want to give it because those acid levels just do not seem to drop in this style. Uh, so really lovely white wines, whether you're barrel fermenting them in neutral or lightly new oak vessels um, through to stainless steel tank fermentations uh, with some um, additional lees aging. Um, and also some sparkling versions are out there as well, which is kind of fun and innovative, which you know Oregon is really all about as well. Um, took a lot of innovation for those first um, those first families who pioneered the industry here to come up here and plant all of these great varieties to see what worked. Uh, so here are two different vineyards. Um, the one on the left makes one of my favorite Savion Blancs, a Columbia Valley um, Savion Blanc called the Gorgeous Savvy, um, uh, made by, funnily enough, um, a New Zealand winemaker and um, an Oregon winemaker as well, but really captures the essence of that beautiful Savion Blanc and often barrel fermented as well. And then on the right, um, a vineyard in the Willamette Valley where you can see there's a lot more, um, uh, you know, leaf growth as well here at this point of time in the season. Um, but again, you see those proximities to the mountainsides and to the river valleys, um, the river edges that are really important for moderating all of our vineyards and really keeping 
the high quality crisp fruit, ripe fruit profiles um, so that we can make high quality wines. Um, this is Del Rio Vineyard in the Rogue Valley as well. Um, you could, don't see it here, but this is quite a steep site and it really spans up. Um, so starting at the highway, which is still at about 1400, 1500 feet elevation, and then goes up to about 1800 feet elevation. Uh, this site makes some of my favorite Chardonnay as well, um, and a fantastic sparkling uh, Chardonnay also. Thanks everyone for joining today. I appreciate your questions. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt-Butt. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha. Give me the red, red wine. Give me the white, white wine. Give me the sweet, sweet wine. Give me the wine. Give me the wine. No, no, no.